So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, February the 9th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 244. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this, this is the way to be. So guess what's going on today? First of all, how about the opening sequences? The bees are doing funny things. So I was looking at my bird feeders, which have blackwell sunflower seeds in them and no other kind of bird seed. And uh, what's going on? The honeybees are crawling in there and rubbing their bodies all over whatever the blackwell sunflower seeds are coated in, some kind of dust. And since they're designed for food, thank goodness that's not any kind of pesticide. So that's the good news. Bad news is they were keeping the birds away from their own feeders because the bees are in there. So what did I do? I put out some dry pollen substitute and this time all I put out was AP23. So in the first sequences they're visiting the feeders and then I dump a little AP23 on the feeders to give them something to benefit the bees if they're going to be foraging and crawling around in there. Then they clean that all up and then I put out the dry pollen subfeeders. So we'll talk more about that later but I wanted to explain what's going on in that opening sequence. That is very interesting stuff. Bees are intense right now. How come? Because the temperatures are warm. It's really weird. So here we are. Remember, ninth day of February. This is a great way to make log entries to document what your bees do year after year because it's 55 degrees Fahrenheit outside. That is 13 degrees Celsius. And here's the thing. They said it might actually go to 60 degrees Fahrenheit today, but I think that's the lower elevations. That's not going to work for me up here. Partly sunny, so we do get some nice splashes of sunshine. Your solar panels will kick in some good energy. That's good news for me. It's windy though, 6.7 mile per hour winds, 69% relative humidity, and of course, as I said, partly cloudy. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description, and all the topics are listed there in order. So I want to thank Adam Holmes for always doing the what you see is the pinned comment later on. Sometimes it takes a day or two to get that up. But when you look at the pinned comment in the comment section of the videos, that's when you'll see all the timestamps associated with that. So shout out to Adam on that. Guess what today is in the United States? National Pizza Day. So they got me thinking, what's it got to do with bees? Nothing. Except that it's National Pizza Day. So what I wanted to do is just give a shout out to the person who made the best pizza I've ever eaten. And I used to live in Italy. I had pizza in Athens, Greece. I've been all over the place because I was in the Navy. So anyway, Richard Florzak, he made the very best pizza I have ever eaten in my life. So shout out to Richard. And if you want to give a shout out to your favorite pizza place, whatever that is, go ahead and put that down in the comments section. If you want to know how to submit your own topic for consideration, please go into uh, my website, which is thewaytobe.org. It's also fredsfinefowl.com, so don't be alarmed if it says two different things. And there's a page there, Mark the Way to Be, and you fill out the form, and your topic gets considered. It doesn't mean that I'll talk about it, but I'll at least read it, and you have a chance. I try to limit my responses to 10 maximum on any given Friday. So what else is going on? If you have a question right now, say you're watching this, you can't wait. You have to talk to somebody about some bee issue that you're having, something you're observing, something you're struggling with. Get ready to write this down. Please go to the Way to Be Fellowship on Facebook. 
So if you don't have Facebook or you dislike Facebook, you won't be able to go there. But if you go there, you'll get answers 24-7. There are people there from all over the world, excellent moderators, no one's allowed to be bullied. And uh, you'll find out that uh, from sophisticated to very basic questions, every topic related to honeybees is welcome. So please go there. And I think that's it. So we should probably jump right in. And the first question comes from Jesse, Kokomo, Indiana. So I like the natural look of wood. Do you see any reason not to use food grade mineral oil as a sealant on the outside of a hive body? Okay, so here's the thing, mineral oil. And there is food grade mineral oil, by the way. If you were going to put that on anything related to your bees, food grade wouldn't hurt, but it's not a great finish for your beehives outside. Some people wipe down, because it gave me a little memory check there, that I think we used to rub mineral oil on chopping blocks, wood chopping blocks and things like that to help close up the cells and make sure that food bacteria didn't get in there, even though mineral oil itself doesn't have anything to do with bacteria. Problem with mineral oil as a wood finish is it really never sets, so it doesn't create a seal. And that means you also have to freshen it up all the time, so it's just going to be damp. You'll hear me mention mineral oil sometimes as something to put into your tray underneath your screen in the bottom board of your hive, and that's because if mites fall in, they die in it. Plus, it's clear, so you can see what's in it. It's pretty cool stuff. So that's how I use it, and you might be thinking, well, then what could I use? Well, if you want an oil finish for the outside tongue oil, there's also Danish oil. These things uh, require maintenance over time, and they're really good because you can use them on wood that's never been finished before, but maybe has been through some weathering, so it can help check or stop the weathering of some of that wood. And if you're wondering my preferred wood treatment, if I had a brand new hive sitting in my garage right now and I was going to put a finish on it before I put it outside, I use eco wood. Eco wood is considered a treatment, not a finish, but it prevents wood rot. It does not necessarily stop your wood from potentially cracking out. So if it's not jointed well, or if it's not glued up well, uh, it's not going to preserve it the way a marine spar varnish might, like I like to use Helmsman's. And uh, so there's lots of choices out there, but mineral oil, I personally would not recommend. So moving on from that to question number two, this comes from Beverly from Harrison, Idaho. Question about frozen honey frames. I remember you mentioned this in one of your episodes. I did have to do this last season due to time constraints. I'm curious how you heated your VivoSun structure to allow them to warm up prior to extraction. Planning on purchasing one to do this, but wondering if I need to get larger ones so that I can fit a heater and possibly dehumidifier in it. They do have a small ceramic heater with temp control, but wouldn't leave much floor space for the frames. So I was thinking, would have to have a taller tent to accommodate, question mark, or looking forward to your input. Anyway, so here we go. VivoSun, if you Google it, uh, sells a lot of products, by the way. They're all related to growing plants indoors. And I got mine because it was a tent. And I was thinking about creating my own tent space to heat up my honey, just as described. 
And uh, when I saw how inexpensive they were, I decided to give it a shot. So if you go to Amazon or you go to just Google Vivo Sun grow tents and things like that, you'll see what I'm talking about. They have a bottom, they're completely enclosed, they're set up so you can have venting if you wanted it. I don't use venting because I use it as a dehumidification space so you can control the environment in there. And they come in all sizes. Now, the reason I stopped my whole idea of building my own, because I thought I would just frame something up and uh, kind of thinly insulate it and then just have, you know, magnets to close my flaps and stuff and then be able to go in there and control that environment to dehumidify the honey or warm it back up. So that's what we're talking about now, creating a space within a space. So in my case, my Vivo Sun is in the basement. You can get one. I just looked it up before I talked about this today. So 96 inches by 48 inches by 80 inches. So I'm guessing that's 96 inches long, 48 inches, excuse me, front to back and 80 inches tall. They make even larger ones. So get the size that you think you would want, but this was my thinking. I already had a dehumidifier in the basement. It's on wheels. Uh, they can run into quite a bit of money, but we weren't really using it that much because I have dehumidification buckets all over the place. So desiccant buckets, and those things work super. They just are fantastic. But I put the um, dehumidifier inside my VivoSun tent, and I just turned it on. And of course, you have choices for you know the percentage of humidity that you want to set it for. And since I'm dehumidifying honey in there. So another part of the question is, doesn't the heater, the ceramic heater, which I also have one of those in there, just in case, um, in case it takes up too much floor space. So what I did is I put a wire rack in there. Now you can get wire racks that are on wheels, so it can make it pretty easy to wheel your stuff around. But in retrospect, I really didn't need the wheels because once I put the rack in there and it's a four level rack, you can put frames of honey, you can put jars of honey on these racks. So when you're looking at them, look for the weight capacity of each shelf. Because remember, honey gets really heavy. So you don't have to put your supers in there. Like, so you can make racks and put your frames on the racks, only the ones that you needed to put in that environment. And there's a couple of reasons for doing it, right? One is if the cells are still open and you're at the end of the year and you're condensing down a hive and you had to pull it anyway very good chance that there's too much moisture in those open cells of honey. So if they're already capped, the second part of that is, uh, if they're already capped, sometimes the honey will crystallize while it's on the frame. And then what good is that to you? Now in the past, those are frames I always just put out for the bees in spring. And remember, they have to come from healthy hives, feed your own bees with them. Don't spread this around just in case there might be some pathogen in your honey it could be spread to other bees. But so for the purposes uh, that we're talking about today, it's so that you can extract the honey. So if it's in the frame and it's in the cells and the cells are closed and you, you go to uncap it and there's that yucky feeling where after you scrape off the caps, it's still crystallized honey in there, you can put that in the rack and raise the temperature up. So here's the thing that I discovered. I have fans in there because I want to move the air. So I have desiccant buckets in there too to keep the humidity low. So the humidity in that space runs about 30% relative humidity. So when you do that, plus the heat. So heat, air movement, and low humidity. Those are the key elements. So the thing is my dehumidifier had reached its setting. So the fan was just running because I had the fan set to on. You can set it to auto 
are on. So I had it on. The unit just heats up on its own. So with just the fan running, just the dehumidifier, without the dehumidification system running, um, it was keeping it up to right around 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which turned out to be perfect. Plus the fan's moving the air. And I had other fans clamped to the top of the structure of the VivoSun because it's a metal frame structure that just has a casing around it. So that is a fantastic way to dehumidify honey or reliquify honey that has set inside on the comb in your frames, right? So then when that's done, you get it up there and it doesn't happen fast, by the way, you might have to leave it this way for several days. If you're dehumidifying, I found out that it takes down about a 1% of water out of your honey every 24 hours. That's conservative. Sometimes it happens quicker. But conservatively, you could drop a percentage point of water every day that it's in there. And because you're just running a fan and the warmth is coming from the motor that the fan is being run by, uh, then it's pretty darn economical. So inexpensive to do. The ceramic heater has a thermometer or thermostat on it. So it can oscillate, so it sits on a pedestal and turns around. Those things are dirt cheap. I think every one of them runs between 1,500 and 1,800 watts when they're heating. But because they have thermostats, you set that too, because you don't want to take it much over 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is kind of in hive temperature anyway. And you can keep it there for an extended period of time until you uncap a couple of those cells to see if they're actually liquefied or not. Once they are, keep them warm, Get your extractor ready to go or your uncapper if you're going to, you know, crush and strain. Whatever your method's going to be, now you have liquid honey to work with again. So it's a great way to salvage that if you're not going to feed it back to your bees. So it's called VivoSun. Google it. There'll be an Amazon link if you want to check it out. And uh, I'm looking to upscale mine, but they were out of stock for the larger ones. So I think I would like to go a little larger, taller isn't necessarily better unless you're going to put a tall rack in there. So if you want to run one that's six feet tall, for example, now you could go to a much bigger rack because you can get industrial metal wire racks, the kind you see in food storage rooms and things like that. Uh, air moves through them easily. They take on no, you know, they're metal, so they're not going to, you know, take on any humidity or moisture or have any problems like that, particularly if you're using it in your basement as I am. So bigger racks, bigger space, more stuff to put in there. So works for a lot of different things. Question number three comes in from James Barron, 1202. That's the YouTube channel name. James says, has there been a study on how far bees usually travel when they swarm? If there even is a usually with them. I'm just wondering how often a hive would swarm into another empty hive within 20 yards from the hive they just left. Okay, now this is pretty funny. In fact, I'm going to mark this down. Um, I had a video that I made last year called The Perfect Swarm. And the thing is, um, I called it The Perfect Swarm because I had two swarms active at the same time in their bivouac location. So the bivouac location is usually very near to the hive that they swarm out of. So bivouac means that's where they're going to momentarily assemble on a tree branch, a tree, sometimes the front of the hive they actually swarmed out of. And in this case, one was in a tree, one was over on the fence, the corner fence post, in fact. The corner fence post was the toughest to get to and I had to make a judgment call. You know, I can go after one or the other, but I was testing the Everything BVAC out, so I used it on the fence post because I thought, great challenge for the piece of gear. While I was doing that, of course, the swarm that was hanging in the tree that I was going to get to later took off on their own. 
And where did they go? They went into an unoccupied beehive. So in other words, it's uh, less of a dead out, more of an abscond. So I highly suspect that we lost the queen in that colony. And that's why, because the workers then just kind of depart and join other colonies in your own apiary if you have other beehives handy. So we had an empty box. There, there weren't honey resources or anything else. It was just drawn comb. And obviously it smelled like it had been occupied. And so the scouts must have found it and they moved right in. And that wasn't even 50 feet from where they were bivouacked on the tree. So when we saw them taking into the air, of course, we thought, oh man, now we're losing those. That's okay. We lost them. They're a big group of bees, but they, we didn't lose them. I went around the fence and on the other side of the fence where the hive was, they were moving in, made a video about it. The perfect swarm. Check it out. It was a lot of fun. So, but the studies, have they been done? Yes, they have. And they find out. So the people that did the studies, like any scientific study, they offered the bees identical cavities to occupy and they did elliptical placement. So in other words, if you put a radius out from wherever the hive that was going to swarm was located, you know, they went out in 10 yard increments. So all the way out to 200 yards, 240 yards, 300 yards, and so on. So 200 to 240 yards from the hive in every direction, north, east, south, and west. So it was a pretty good study. And of course the hives were consistent, same height off the ground, same setup. So the 200 to 240 yard from that point was the most popular. Now, does that mean that your bees wouldn't move into another cavity that's close by? So this is what I started doing last year. If I had a dead out or a colony that I lost the queen or something, normally we would take it all apart, replace pieces, replace boxes and things like that. Just for kicks, I decided to start leaving them there. So there weren't robbing opportunities. They would be something that you want to keep inspecting because for example, uh, a wax moth could lay her eggs there and then you could have wax moth larvae eating up that leftover comb, which is a natural recycling of an abandoned colony of bees. So keep track of things like that. But uh, I decided to just leave them right in the apiary. And uh, let me tell you what, every single box that was left like that got occupied. So even swarms that we weren't aware. So now here's what could be happening too. Uh, bees from other apiaries in my area, because there are several around, could have come and scouted my own apiary and moved in. So you can get a box occupied. The number one, the best lure, and I know, you know, I just talked to the guy from the Blythewood Bee Company who invented uh, Swarm Commander, and we get all into how much of a, you know, a feat that was biochemically, and it's really uh, nascent a synthetic nasenhoff. It's not just lemongrass oil and so on. But I was talking to him. The thing is, the most attractive, in my personal experience, the most attractive hives that are being used as swarm lures and traps uh, have lots of old brood comb in them. So that naturally smells like it's been occupied before by bees and it's attractive to them. So when you're setting up boxes or thinking about a hive that you have in your own apiary and wondering, gee, can that just get occupied? Uh, please remove frames of pollen that might be in there. Please remove frames of honey and resources that are still in it and try to just leave a box that's got empty comb in it. And of course the brood comb is more appealing than comb, for example, that came just from honey supers. So usually your deep frames are in your brood boxes anyway. So save your old frames, 
use them for lures. So studies have been done, but there again, bees are opportunistic and they move into spaces that they think are suitable. It works really well. And Swarm Commander does work. I have a bunch of it. I use that too. But uh, I'm just letting you know, Swarm Commander, for example, if you don't have a bunch of old brood frames and things like that, that would be my number one recommended lure for swarms because it gets them interested. Our whole goal is to get scouts to show up, fly through a smell that is luring them in, and the Nazanoff scent is what's pulling them in. So when you see a bunch of bees on a landing board with their abdomens up in the air and that little white patch open, it's called Nazanoff's gland, and that's because there's an anatomist named Nazanoff. So it's his gland, Nazanoff's gland. So there you have it. And they spread that uh, pheromone into the air and then that attracts even bees unrelated to that hive to fly over and scope it out. So that's what we're doing. We're spreading those pheromones and then getting scouts to check it out. And if they're from a colony that's about to swarm, ultimately they move in. That's the goal. So now we're moving on to question number four. And this comes from G's Bees. G-S-Bees. That's the YouTube channel name. Fred, my buddies and I are going to be building a couple of your horizontal hives tomorrow, this week, with your 2024 plans. My question, will the shim box on the bottom cause a lot of burr comb, primarily off the bottom of the frames? Best, G. Boise. Oh, I think that's Boise, Idaho. Okay, so here's the thing. And uh, for those of you who don't know, you might be new to my channel. Welcome, by the way. Uh, you can go to that same... YouTube, not YouTube, but you can go to the same uh, website, thewaytobe.org. There is a page marked Prints and Drawings. Those prints and drawings are available for you to download. They're PDFs. And you can use them as a benchmark just to get the wheels turning and build your own hive design, for example. And uh, that's what this is about. So there's a long Langstroth hive in there. The long Langstroth hive that I have out in the bee yard right now uh, makes use of bee space. So at the bottom of the deep frames, it's made for all deep frames throughout its length. And it's five feet long, by the way. So um, there's another option that we decided to put in there. And that is to add more space underneath those frames. So the shim is just another two by four. So that's it, two by four, and then two by 12 above that. And then we get into the rabbit joints and we get into the cover boards, and then we get into the top of the hive and so on. So here's the thing, the space underneath those deep frames, would that encourage burr comb? Well, it's really not so much a burr comb as it is the bees will create an extension once they have a surplus. So in other words, once the bees have drawn out the faces of all these frames in there and they're doing really well and they're expanding, the next thing they start to look at is open spaces. So bee space is three eighths of an inch. And that was discovered by Reverend Langstroth who came up with the Langstroth hive who removed frames. Now, some people have suggested that other people discovered B-Space too. So I don't know, but Langstroth published it. So anyway, it's three eighths of an inch. I don't know what that is in metric, but uh, so at three eighths of an inch, in other words, the bees don't close it up. In other words, they don't treat it like a crack or a crevice and use propolis to fill it. They also don't expand and fill the space with comb. So that would be beyond three eighths of an inch. So less than three eighths of an inch, seal it up with propolis, bigger than three eighths of an inch, they actually build honeycomb to fill the space. Now in the bottom of spaces, and I'm gonna give a shout out again to Randy McCaffrey and Mr. Ed, 
uh, Jeff Horchoff. They both do these terrific ripouts. They're a fantastic source of information because they see so many different hives, the cavities, the spaces, and how they use them. So it's really interesting because sometimes you see a lot of space underneath the comb that is inside these cavities. Usually it's the wall of a house. In some cases, it was actually a recreation vehicle, so an RV. And uh, they really get to see some interesting use of the space by the bees, horizontal and vertical. So in a lot of cases, the bees draw their comb all the way down within what? Three eighths of an inch of the interior surface. They almost never connect their comb to the bottom of the cavity that they're building in. So that's really interesting to me. So then this is why we left the space down there. It's for a lot of travel for the bees, it's airflow through the bottom, but we only have one entrance in my hive designs and that carries through all of them, whether it's the nucleus hive, vertical Langstroth hive, or the horizontal Langstroth hive, they all have single entrances. And of course, that's where it's up to you. When you decide to build your own or use those plans, if you want to add an entrance or some other vent that you control, then that's completely up to you. It's just not something that I do after all my years of observation right here where I live in my climate. So moving on from that, with the frames there, if they're going to build extra comb, they build on the bottom of the frames because that's where the space is. And what kind of comb would they build? Nine times out of 10, they build drone cell sized comb. Now that's really good for a lot of reasons. Uh, the first part is if they're, they're drawing down that extra comb when you pull it up. So this is different, by the way, from burr comb. Burr comb makes connections and there's something called brace comb where different uh, layers of comb are bonded together by braces or what we would call struts in engineering. So those are things to stiffen things up or connect inside. So this is really just an expansion of comb, not really burr comb. So then they'll fill those cells either with resources, which they can do. The other thing is they'll be filling them with drone brood. So that gives you an opportunity as part of your integrated pest management. If you're trying to count mites, for example, shout out to Dr. Zachary Lamas, by the way, who um, let us know that a lot more mites are showing up in the drone comb and the drone pupa phases, but we already knew that. But the part that he learned about was that they're also attaching themselves to the bodies of the drones. So your drones can be used as physical lures to draw out your Varroa destructor mites away from your nurse bees, right? So anyway, this gives you lots of opportunity to do two things. One, pull out the pupa stage of your drones and use that as integrated pest management and a way to count mites on the bodies of those uh, developing pupae. And the other thing is uh, you can harvest the comb. So when you scrape it off, you're collecting beeswax, you're controlling mites, and you're taking away, of course, drones. Now that's something that you should know also is polarizing among beekeepers because a lot of them will say, don't we need those drones? Well, yes, we do need drones. And particularly if it's a really healthy hive, a thriving hive, and they've got genetics that we hope to spread out through our entire area to all the neighboring beekeepers, we want them to have our genetics. So when our virgin queens fly out to get mated, they end up mating with our own bees at some other apiary. That for me is a perfect world. So we would harvest the drones and remove them from colonies that we're not in favor of so much, but we want to keep them alive. And then colonies that are superstars that have low mite counts to begin with, we just let those drones emerge and on their way they go. So when you do Varroa mite counts, and please learn to do those, 
um, you will use this as integrated pest management control in the colonies that have high mite counts or are starting to build mite counts because we want the genetics of the other colonies that have a lot of uh, hygienic behavior and grooming behaviors that are removing the varro destructor mites. So, gave a long answer to that, but uh, I just wanted to explain all the many benefits of that design, potentially. And you have lots of decisions, so it works for every management style, by the way. Moving right on, question number five. This comes from Blake, McKinney, Texas. It says, I have a 50 foot by 50 foot backyard along with three children ages three to eight. I'd love to get your wisdom on whether keeping a hive or two would be a good idea or not. Okay, so 50 feet by 50 feet. This isn't even one of those quarter acre lots. And so I'm just guessing because the information isn't provided. This sounds like a residential area. So you also may have immediate neighbors to each side and behind you. So there's more than just your own kids involved here. So this is a complete judgment call. But the first thing I want any new beekeeper to think about, check in to see if there are any ordinances or restrictions against livestock. When you see that term, people think cattle, sheep, chickens. But livestock is actually where bees are collected. In other words, they're under the umbrella of the Department of Agriculture's management. So I don't know all the rules in Texas. I also don't know where in Texas you are, but uh, I mean, McKinney, you said the name, but I don't, you know, in my mind, I don't know where that city or town is. But um, we need to be very careful as beekeepers, setting it up not just for our own kids. You've got a three-year-old. So me personally, if they're that young, I have a two-year-old. In fact, she just turned two yesterday, two-year-old granddaughter. And uh, we have bee suits, her size, that's right. And why would she have a bee suit? Because even to show her the bees in the bee yard, I put her in a bee suit just to tote her around. I do not want that experience she might have of getting stung by a bee as a two-year-old and not understand what that is. And of course be terrified of bees. And then what have I lost? I've lost a future beekeeper. So I am raising these grandkids to take over the apiary. So my job is dictate what they do, educate them in the way to be academy and watch them do the work while I drink cappuccino. That's my goal. So when it comes to kids that age range, I would not yet put bees in my yard. Um, and of course, it's just my opinion, see, but if you did it now, I have to go that way. Let's say you're, you were hoping to get a positive answer for me. And since I said, I would not personally do it. Now you'll go off and look somewhere else to find somebody who agrees with you maybe. And so what I would suggest is if you were going to do it now, uh, where I grew up, your trash cans could not be visible. So that was kind of interesting. You had to have a stockade fence around your trash cans and it was up against our woodshed which by the way was really funny because it used to be a monkey house the people that owned that house ahead of us had a spider monkey that's neither here nor there but it just made me think of it that's how weird the place was but uh, a stockade fence like that that was around our trash cans could be around your beehives and what's the benefit of that putting it around your beehive means that your bees fly up and over the fence and not directly through the path of play for your children. This is a very restricted area that you're talking about. So getting those bees up and over and flying to resources. The other thing is you wanna check in with all your neighbors. That's right, all of them. 
I realize you're putting yourself on report by saying I'm about to get a beehive and then he finds out somebody doesn't like bees and now they know that that was your plan. But if anyone has allergies to bee stings, we need to find that out. You need to find that out about your own kids as well and doctors can do tests and they can let you know. But if you had a neighbor right next door that had a very sensitive allergy to bee stings and then you might think, well, if they got stung, that was in their own yard, they'd have to prove that was my bee. There is a precedent already, not in Texas, but in another state that I won't mention. But uh, a beekeeper was sued when someone was stung and suffered anaphylaxis. And it was almost a block away from where the person owned the bees. So you might say, well, good luck proving that. Well, see, now we have a problem because we have genomes. Genomes are the DNA, the full DNA of your bees. So all they had to do was get the bee that stung them and died. In this case, stung them and was killed because they slapped it, which might be why it stung them in the first place. But uh, they have the bee and they connect the genetics to the originator, the person that owns the bees. So they won the case. That's bad news. Um, so in the city, what would you do as an alternative? Here's what I suggest for a backyard with a bunch of kids. Grow pollinator-friendly plants. Set up a garden. Set up a pollinator garden. And rather than keep the bees in a hive, let bees come to your garden and let your kids learn about them and enjoy them out there. And you can teach them all about them. And then down the road, maybe when the three-year-old becomes a five or six-year-old, seven-year-old maybe, and we know that they're not freaked out by bees, because that's the other thing, not every child likes to be around bees. And uh, so if you find out that they see a bee scream and run away, this is definitely not something you want to be keeping in your yard, because your yard should be, in my opinion, for your kids to play outside. So those are my thoughts on that. There's a risk. There's uh, It's a small space, neighbors, ordinance. Check it all out. Move forward slowly. Protect the children. So question number six, can't believe we're already up there. This comes from Steve, Santa Clarita, California. Wasn't there a series on Netflix called the Santa Clarita Diet? Anyway, so Steve is from Santa Clarita and says, I have four strong hives in double deeps starting my third year of beekeeping. So this is it, the third year of beekeeping. Eight out of 10 brand new backyard beekeepers quit at the end of or during their third year of beekeeping. When do they quit most often? Usually in spring when they've lost their bees. So Steve is about to beat the odds coming into spring. So it says, I do not have a lot of drawn comb for my honey supers. I'd like to get the bees drawing these out before the spring flow really kicks in. Is there a way to feed bees sugar water in early spring so they will draw comb on undrawn foundation in the honey super without them storing sugar water in the comb they draw? That's a good question. So, and this is something that's coming up in spring. So first let's talk about that foundation. Just gonna take a random example. This is foundation and this is a honey super foundation. Look, it's a medium frame, medium depth. It's kind of chalky looking. That's called wax bloom, by the way. Wax builds up this little white chalky substance. Does it ruin it? No, it's still fine. In fact, if you hit it with a hairdryer, that would go away. You can even wipe it with hot water and that will go away. But we wanna keep the wax. So the reason I show this is whatever foundation you're using, if it is a plastic foundation, make sure to get the heaviest 
dipping or coating of wax that the company that's selling you that foundation offers. Sometimes they say single dip, heavy dip, double dip, triple dip. Acorn will give you a triple dip wax frame. Your bees will draw quicker on that. So now moving on to answer this question. Yes, you can get them to draw a comb. Now here's the thing. What do they need to draw a comb? Well, they need the carbohydrates. So this is where your sugar syrup would work and try to feed it in hive. So by that I mean on top of your inner cover, have a syrup feeder up there. A wrap it around is fantastic because it will never leak down into your hive. And the light syrups are the best for drawing out combs. So one to one is one, like one pound of sugar to one pound of water, but it's more popular to have eight pounds of sugar to a gallon of water. That's one to one. You can even go leaner than that. So you could, for example, go six pounds of dry granulated white sugar to a gallon of water and mix it up. Now that's a little thin, but it's been demonstrated that the bees will actually draw out comb on that. So they'll actually build um, beeswax comb and it works really well. So a light syrup in spring is not something that your bees tend to store. So they tend to consume it right away. And here's the thing, it has to be warm enough. So don't be premature on that. So right now, you know, we're in the fifties here, we might hit 60. This would not be a time, for example, that I would put any kind of syrup out there because bad news, it's going to get cold again. So this is too early, but I'm glad we're talking about it. Uh, inside the hive, in the area where the bees are working the comb, they need to get their temperatures up into the 80s. So bees work comb when it's warm. Now they can create a warm pocket in there. So you can get a bunch of comb builders together that cluster around where they're building the comb and they can create enough heat to work it they're producing it right through their wax glands on their abdomen and then they're going to work that up but if it's too cold they just won't do it and the, the other part of this is once they start so when we get a warm-up so you're looking at the weather report and there's going to be a couple of weeks in the 80s or high 70s and sunny yes that's the time to try to get your bees to build that new comb now if you get a significant nectar flow they're kind of going to do it on their own but here's where they stall here's what shuts them down they start getting, I don't know if it's dandelions or wherever they're getting the resources from, wherever they're getting their nectar and they're bringing it in and you see that they're building comb. Um, then you see in the forecast, we're going to get two weeks of rain, overcast and cooler taps. That's when you want to put that sugar syrup on there to keep them going. Because something happens to your bees once they stop. They have a hard time getting them started again because I've gotten all excited about making time-lapsed video sequences that would last for several days showing bees make that little teardrop first because they build accordance to gravity. So we want to make sure that the hive that they're building in, unless it has foundation, that's not that big of a problem. But if you're doing foundationless, left to right, we want to make sure that this thing is really centered well and leveled up because they're going to festoon and you'll see the bees holding their little arms together and they, they make a daisy chain of bees and they're hanging off a frame. What are they doing? They're festooning. They're measuring it and they're, they're figuring out what angle it's going to be built at. So gravity is there and they start to build the frame. Uh, they build a foundation themselves. So foundationless is more critical. If you have the foundation heavy wax, not so much of a problem. Once they start, keep them going. And if rain's coming and it shuts off their access to nectar out in the environment, you can feed sugar syrup in there. Because remember, this is a new colony. You are not putting supers on it. You are not trying to build a resource that's going to be used by people later. Because if you were, I take back everything I just said. 
if you're putting a honey super on there and you're hoping that they'll draw out comb that they're going to use that you're going to harvest honey from then you shouldn't feed them at all and you should depend exclusively on the environment because the only thing we want in that honey in that comb that's going to be consumed by people uh, is going to be floral generated nectar so i hope i covered the ground on that one that was the end of question six moving on to question number seven this comes from keith st louis missouri my hometown I'm actually from Kirkwood, but I like to say, and they just had a big gathering there for a bunch of beekeepers. Jeff Horchoff, they were all there. I was not there. I'm going to be in Western Pennsylvania this weekend for a conference. So. so anyway, Keith from St. Louis, Missouri, with regard to your enclosed screen bottom board concept with a tray that you have been dreaming about. Do you anticipate condensation running down the interior walls of the hive body and water collecting in the enclosed bottom board? If so, any thoughts on how you're planning to drain it so that it does not collect and rot out the bottom board? That's a good question. So, and yes, I'm not just dreaming about it. I have screen bottom boards in a lot of my hives. Uh, and condensation is supposed to because my screen bottom boards have trays under them. So I don't have any screen bottom boards that are just open to the ground. There are removable trays and the condensation goes into the trays. We remove the trays, swap them out with clean ones, get rid of the condensation, inspect the trays for mites and pests. And we can kind of see what kind of detritus is falling down in there and we can get a feel for what's going on in that hive. So, um, and this is also the prints that I referred to earlier that are on my website. They all have screen bottom board options you don't have to have it but they have options and then um so we talk about trays being able to remove them i have a very good friend named bill Waz, and uh, he gave a demonstration at one of our bee breakfasts recently because bill forgets his trays sometimes in his bottom boards so he designed a bottom board uh, with a screen in the bottom but what he does is puts multiple trays in there so as you don't walk out to your bee yard, you're inspecting, you pull a tray to check on, oh man, things full of water. But then you don't have your other uh, tray handy or you pull the tray out to go clean it and you forget to put it back. Now we have the wood exposed. Now we have condensation going down there and soaking your wood and potentially causing it to rot. And the prototype that he showed was OSB. So that's oriented strand board. You do not want that stuff getting wet. It is going to pucker up and it's going to degrade really fast. So the other thing that I would recommend is keep your trays in there, follow Bill's example, put multiple trays, stack them together. So when you're pulling a tray, you got a replacement already there. You're not running back to your bee shed and you can do it on the fly, so to speak. So um, my bottom boards are treated with eco wood. So I mentioned that before, it's a mineral finish, it's non-toxic. And uh, whenever you get new bottom boards, soak them in it, dry them out, they're good to go. Basically, never needs to be refreshed, never needs to be renewed. So if you're forgetful, stack your trays in there and make sure that it can accommodate the space. For those of you who are building your own bottom boards, you can do that. So the other part is um, I do have enclosed um, nucleus hives, for example, that I've had for several years. And because I bought them that way from Better Bee, Better Bee doesn't even sell them anymore because the guy that used to make them passed away. And that's sad. Uh, but nobody else picked up that mantle and, and continued to build them. So my nukes that have fixed bottom boards, they have an entrance on the front. Water accumulates in those nukes. I can see because they're tilting forward, we see the damp edges around 
uh, where the wood comes together. So the water does leach and it has to be pooling inside that bottom board. So the thing is, did it rot them out? No, they're treated with eco wood. So um, I had no way to remove them because they don't have trays or anything else, which was, you know, the spark that made me want to have nucleus hives with green bottom boards. So then I took the lazy man route. Um, I went and found screened bottom boards uh, for nukes. Now we're talking about the five frame wooden nukes. Um, I found screen bottom boards that were designed to just be open. So maybe they're for southern climates and stuff like that. But what I did is I took those and I bought a bunch of them and I treated them all with eco wood. And then I installed bottoms on them because they had enough of a sideboard where they had enough space that I could put little, these are sandwich trays they're called, and you get them on Amazon. They just happen to fit perfectly under a nuke. So all I had to do was screw solid bottom boards to the bottom of these screen bottom boards. And uh, now I have the enclosure that I needed and I just created a piece of wood for the back. Magnets, slap it on the back, closes it up. I've got a removable tray. So the thing I'm trying to point out here is there's lots of versatility, but your goal is to get the moisture to go into your tray, not onto the wooden bottom board. So these are interesting things, great areas for innovation. And I wanna thank Bill for sharing that with us, his ideas. And uh, this is something that we may see more of in the future. But, uh, and of course the Flow Hives, they've been out for a long time, since 2015. They've all had screen bottom boards with removable trays, but they're not enclosed. So once you pull the removable tray out, it's open underneath. And this is why that's a problem for me. If I pull that and forget about it, do you know what happens? Other bees that are trying to rob colonies, and we're in prime robbing situations right now, they will smell the honey inside the hive, and they will congregate and collect on that screen under your hive. So it lets smells out, and also the bees are no longer in control of where air is moving in and out of the hive, So because it's just open. That's why I like the enclosed bottom board. I like a tray. I want to know what's going on. I want to be able to remove the tray collect mites, screen bottom boards, studies have been done, 15% control of varroa destructor mites passively when they fall through the screen and get trapped in a tray that's got PAM cooking spray on it, or as we mentioned earlier, mineral oil. So I think we covered the ground. You could keep your joints loose or something, weep holes if you have concerns about a lot of condensation I can just say that through the several winters that I've had here with those enclosed nukes, because I'm just waiting for them to, to fail so I can swap them out. The bees are all flying today. I went out and looked at them and they're still strong. They're still doing great. So that enclosed cavity with the bottom board with no tray, no screen, solid bottom board, enclosed space, traps moisture, they're making it. And that they're not insulated at all on the walls. And they're not, these colonies are not fed. They have an insulated cap that sits on top, and that is it. And they're still strong. Spring will tell the tale. Question number eight, moving on. This is from Jacob from West Sunbury, Pennsylvania. My question pertains to the queen. Are there any scents or pheromones that can attract only her majesty to certain areas inside the hive? I have some ideas for trapping her in there if a lure can draw her near. My concern is causing swarms as well. Okay, so I did some checking on this. I love to play with pheromones. Specifically, I like to play with queen mandibular pheromone. 
So the, the problem is uh, the pheromone that most affects the colony, in fact, the largest impact on your colony is going to be from the queen. So uh, queen's mandibular pheromone is going to tell the bees a lot of things about her. That's why we know if she's mated or a virgin. That's why we know uh, how strong the pheromone is. And when that pheromone starts to thin down, uh, the bees can start to look to replace the queen. It also tells about her fertility. And so on and on it goes. And when a queen flies out to do her mating flight, it's her pheromone that gets the attention of those drones that are on the wing and they chase her down. So the queen pheromone uh, is the strongest and it impacts the behavior of drones on flight, in flight. And it impacts, of course, the behavior of workers, whether or not they need to replace her, whether or not she's productive and doing well, whether or not they need to supersede her or kill her off. And we've seen that where they turned on the queen and killed her off. So the other thing you might think about is, are there pheromones associated uh, at any time that would draw a queen to a specific place inside the hive? So queens are naturally exploring the hive and feeling their way around. And you will notice that the retinue, which are the nurse bees around the queen, do a lot of work to kind of direct her and follow her around and make sure that she's cared for, make sure that she's fed. They also clean up after her. The queen does not fly out and defecate. Uh, so these nurse bees that are following the queen around take care of every part of her. Uh, the only part that I could think of where there would be any pheromone challenges going on and it doesn't work to attract a queen. So we have queens that are in cells that are developing at a time where they're gonna supersede the queen. But uh, before those cells get capped and before the new queens emerge, the existing queen in the colony, she's either killed by the bees or she flies out and that's a swarm. So once she leaves, she's gone and the developing queens that are inside, in some cases we hear them piping and uh, you'll hear several of them piping at once. So now we have multiple queens. Now the piping is a vibration and that vibration they feel through the comb. So you'll even see worker bees on the queen cells and they'll grab the cell and vibrate it and bounce their thorax off of that. So it's kinetic energy, right? And so what they're doing is they're feeling each other's vibrations. And so when the queens come out, we've noticed that uh, a queen that goes to kill another queen, is she attracted to the pheromone of the other queen? Or is she just following vibrations that are being emitted? Because that's the other thing. They're doing these little quacks and trumpets and pipes. And I know there have been studies done. And there are, by the way, I'm not just making up noises. There are quacks. There are pipings. There are beeps. And so there are a lot of different things that queens... This has been studied so that queens, their noises that they make at different stages of development and activities. And sometimes people even get a queen in the mail and she's still piping in her cage. So when they vibrate and pipe and everything, the queen goes. And, and if you'll watch a queen when she grabs onto a cell that has another queen in it. So one has emerged, she's out, she's got the advantage. She grabs onto a cell. They can actually chew a hole inside of the cell. Sometimes the nurse bees inside the hive will protect that cell and not let another queen attack it. That's interesting. Uh, on the other side of that, sometimes those workers will help the queen chew a hole in the side of the cell. Why are they chewing a hole in the side of the cell instead of at the end on the cap at the bottom? Because up in here is the thorax of the queen and the other queen is going to sting her right under her wing. How do they get that accuracy? I don't know. 
I don't have any videos or photos of queens stinging queens inside their cells. That would be on my bucket list. But sometimes the workers actually do a lot of funny things to queens, but I can't find any information that suggests that any of this activity is pheromone-based. So queens attract and impact workers and drones with pheromones. There's nothing I know of that will draw a queen by pheromone to a specific part of the hive. So it's a very interesting question, but, um, and trapping the queen, just find her and get her. That's what I say. See the behavior of the bees on the frame, find the queen, collect the queen, trap the queen. This might even be quicker than trying to wait to see if, because look how much we depend then on the bees to fan the pheromone around. And uh, I don't think uh, it's as easy as just looking for the queen and finding her yourself. So question number nine, moving on. This is from Peter from Mundaring, Western Australia. I probably said that wrong. Probably has a cool way of saying it. When do you put honey in your hot tea? Oh, it says, I'm sorry. When you put honey in your hot tea or coffee, does the heat negate the health properties? I know that some people get very caught up in the medicinal value of honey, the enzymes in the honey. And uh, there was a thing circulating around social media, big surprise, Facebook, a giant picture of honey on a spoon, a metal spoon, and it was dripping over a coffee cup. And uh, big letters, do not use metal spoons on your honey, it destroys all the benefits of the honey. And then they say use only, and then show a bamboo, a honey dipper. Honey dippers are made out of wood. So they show honey dippers, use only honey dippers. So this ties in with that, and I'm gonna tell you why. I'm gonna address both of them. If you are making hot tea, what is the temperature that tea gets served at? I think it's right around 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Now you're probably thinking Celsius, so it could be different. But um, if you're going to drink hot tea, the honey that you're putting in it is a sweetener. It's a natural sweetener. So the purpose for putting it in hot tea is to sweeten the tea and make it taste better. That's, that's where I'm at, right there. So those who are really wanting to benefit from the enzymes of the honey, you're going to need to not depart from temperatures that it would be exposed to inside the hive. So if you take that honey and you move it up to above 95 degrees Fahrenheit, you potentially damage the enzymes right there. And that is well below drinking temperature of tea. When people pour tea, they want it steaming and super hot and they put their honey in it right away and they're gonna eat it. So I also had to look to see most sources. So now this is a consensus of when honey gets damaged. So we have all the experts chiming in on when honey is ruined. So this is several experts agreeing that between 110 to 115 degrees Fahrenheit, so we're still below the hot tea, pouring, mixing, adding honey temperature. And for those that are looking for Celsius, it's 43 to 46 degrees. And so um, that's not hot tea. So if you get to the hot tea point, you are wiping out the infertase, you're wiping out the enzymes. But the big question is, what were those enzymes going to do for you? 
So I, it's just, you just need to look at it as a sweetener. And that's my opinion. So now let me address the metal part. So drink cold tea and put honey in it if you're trying to benefit from the Invertase or something. So here's the thing. Now the metal spoon, let's talk about that. Let's really think. And this is why I always want anyone who's listening to me to please question everything because so much gets delivered and recycled and somebody sees it and then they recycle it and then they recycle it. And then you look next to this thing, honey on a metal spoon is ruined. And then you see that there's 475 shares on that statement. Here's the other part of it. Another rabbit hole. Where do they get the honey they're using? If they got it off the shelf in their supermarket, it's already ruined. It's way too late. I don't know even, that's probably not even honey. If you do research on funny honey, you'll get lost. But let's say you bought your honey from a reputable beekeeper. Okay. And because let's think about the exposure to metal and whether or not it ruins the honey. That spoon is the least of your worries. And here's why. Go and visit the honey processing room where that honey came from. And you're going to see that everything from the extraction tank to the warming tank, to the uncapping tank, to the pipes that it goes through, it's all metal. So that honey has already been exposed to metal at almost every step of the way after it was removed from the hive, stored in the hot room, and then brought to the uncapping system, right? Now, if it's a very small backyard beekeeper who does not run it through a metal extractor, maybe they've got a plastic pocket. Maybe everything that it goes into is only plastic. So maybe nothing was in contact that is metal with your honey. So you may have something there, but now you really have to hunt that out. People that are producing honey on any sideliner scale are going to have all stainless steel metal systems. So that honey has been exposed. Holding tanks, they have been exposed. Warming tanks, they have been exposed to metal all the way. So that last little dip of, of the spoon, avoid that altogether. Take your jar of honey, tip it a little bit, because that's how when I put honey in coffee or anything else, I don't take a spoon and dip it into the honey and then put it in my drink. I take the jar and I tip it over and I let it run straight from the glass jar into my cup and then I stir it. But am I concerned now that the stirring has somehow uh, put my spoon in contact with the honey after it's in contact with the drink I'm about to drink? Do you understand the rabbit hole that we just went down? It is a sweetener. It is going to make your drink taste better. That's my opinion on the whole thing. And boy, do people get strong opinions, which is why a post like that goes so viral. You've destroyed your honey. Does it not taste sweet still? Yes, it does. Does it taste like honey? Yes, it does. Does it smell like honey? Yes, it does. Do you feel like you had the honey experience? Now, maybe if you're going to put it on toast or something, same thing. Dip your jar and drizzle it on there. And then, you know, use a plastic spoon to spread it around or a plastic knife or something. So that's enough. I, uh, yes, you're ruining the enzymes when you pour it in coffee or tea that is at hot tea, hot coffee serving temperature. So it's a sweetener now. Question number 10. This is the last one for today. 
This comes from Slade, who is from, oh, here we go, Tonganoxie, Kansas. I have two hops vines in my yard. Do you see any benefit in adding some hops to my smoker? So once again, thank you for this one, Slade. Down the rabbit hole on hops. And this is what's funny, okay? What came in the mail this last week? This is the Man Lake BN Ag Supply Catalog. This just came out. Talk about timely. Page 37. Page 37 right there has hops. It has all the different smoker fuels, for example. And uh, they make some claims on here. So remember what I just said on the last question? Question everything. So here we are. Everything from untreated burlap remnants. These are smoker fuels, right? And we have, so untreated burlap remnants are $13.60 a pound, which is probably a lot because, you know, a pound of burlap would not be that, would be bulky, it would be a lot. High octane coffee chaff smoker fuel. Two pounds of that will cost you $11.50. So that's high octane coffee chaff smoker. And I'm wondering, because it says Java Cycle beekeeping smoker fuel Eco-friendly, burns longer, smells good. If I had a smoker fuel that would actually smell like coffee brewing or like a coffee roaster, I might be tempted to try that out. It's $11.50 for two pounds. And then they have the regular smoker fuel, which is from people that use pellets, like pellet stoves, $9.99 for five pounds, compressed wood pellets. But then we get down here to, there's a half pound of smoker fuel and it's just called smoker fuel, made by Man Lake, $5.25 for half a pound of it. So if you're starting to figure it out, these things are expensive, but it really got me interested because this ties in with Slade from uh, Tonganoxie, Kansas. The BCOM all naturally hop smoker fuel. It's 60% more calming than burlap. So I really wanted to know where they came up with the 60%. How do you know if it'd be 60% calmer with this one than that one? But this was the most expensive on the whole page. Two pounds of it will cost you, and these are pellets, will cost you $20.95. You can get a 44 pound bag of smoker fuel that is 60% more calming than burlap, $225.95. And they said scientifically proven to be 60% more calming to bees than burlap. And then I looked into it. I looked it up. There were no published scientific papers. So it's anecdotal. So for those of you who don't know what that is, anecdotal means somebody else uses it and says, hey man, these are 60% more uh, calming to my bees. My bees were 60% more calmer when I used that smoker instead of this smoker over here. So, and that's interesting too, because this question is about a hops vine and this is hops smell, uh, smoker pellets called Be Calm. And uh, I'm not saying it doesn't, so don't quote me anywhere and don't weaponize my words. Uh, I'm just saying I could find no published scientific paper that proved the method by which they established that it would be 60% calmer for bees. So then the question about hops, so I, I go down that. What if you had a hops vine in your yard 
And it says here, do you see any benefit in adding some hops to my smoker? Does that mean in replace of whatever fuel you're using? So I don't know what fuel's being used. People love to use pine needles that they find under pine trees. Um, I've historically used um, shavings from, so pine shavings that's used for animal bedding. So I get that for my chicken coops anyway. So pine shavings work pretty good. It can potentially burn hot. But I wanna show you what I discovered about drawbacks of using hops vines. So there's a process to it, which may lend to the fact as to why it is so expensive. Moisture content. It says fresh hops vines contain high moisture leading to poor burning thick smoke and potential for clogging your smoker. That would be just like wood that was not seasoned. So that makes sense. It says next, resins and oils. Hops have potent resins and oils that might impart an unpleasant or even harmful smell to the smoke, potentially stressing your bees more. And then the next part, longevity. Dried hops lose their calming properties over time and their volatile compounds degrade, reducing their effectiveness. And I realize this is an extreme oversimplification, but it goes on to say that if you still plan to use hops, drying is crucial, well ventilated. So in other words, you're not gonna collect it today, use it tomorrow or next week. They have to be completely dried out, but that puzzles me because in dried out, you lose the volatiles and all the other things that probably make it smell good to people. I don't know. So it says consider mixing hops with the established and readily available smoker fuels like pine needles, wood chips to dilute potential negative effects. And I think that's what Slade was planning to do, dilute it with something you already have. So my question is, is this really for the beekeeper or for the bees? I don't know. But uh, that's going to lead me on to, so I would say, you know, need for further study. Uh, and if it's good for you and, you, and if your bees are not reacting strongly to it, if you've ever puffed a smoker on your bees and they really get agitated and take off, uh, that's not necessarily good. You can oversmoke your bees or smoke them with something that they have a reaction to, which actually makes them defensive instead of passive and easy going. So minimal smoke, a cool smoke. So if you're puffing away, uh, if you have little kids and you give them a smoker, keep them away from your bees. Because what do little boys in particular like to see? Lots of smoke. And when you see little sparks going out the end of that, first of all, it's a bad smoker design. All of my smokers have spark arresters under the cone, right? So you can't actually force out big particles of whatever you're burning in there. Um, so there are a lot of things when we're talking about combustion, using smoke, and getting it out there. Cool smoke, dense smoke, that actually um, moves your bees with minimal smoking. So in other words, uh, when you've decided to use some smoke, before you inspect your hives, light puffs at the entrance. If you've got an upper entrance, light puffs there, crack the lid a little bit, life puffs at, puffs at the back. But when you pull it up and you start to get bees that come out, uh, they don't need additional smoking unless you've got bees staring at your every move or going after you. They look at your eyes because we have high contrast in our face and our eyes are high contrast. If you're wearing dark sunglasses, you'll notice they'll look at your sunglasses. If you've got guard bees staring at you, a light puff, they'll turn away and go in their happy way. So that's an effective smoke deterrent. Uh, the smoke causes your bees uh, to reduce their communication. It ruins the alarm pheromone that bees spread out. So we could talk a little bit about the alarm pheromone and why we're smoking. If they perceive that there's a fire nearby, 
they would consume uh, honey and then of course they would seek deep shelter and they would form a cluster low in the hive. This is why the constant smoking of a hive as you progress through your inspection, um, the bees just end up with nowhere to go. They're trying to get low, they're trying to get away from the smoke, but if you're still smoking them and you're down to you know five frames in the hive and you've pulled all the boxes off, it's time to back off on the smoke because your bees are trying to get away. They just can't other than taking flight, which is against their instincts. Why would that be against the bee's instinct? Because if there were in fact a forest fire nearby, bees that fly out of the tree, which is you know what the cavity really is supposed to simulate, if they flew out of the tree, they would definitely expire in the fire. If they've got a queen that's in full production in that hive, she is what needs to be protected. She cannot fly. She's too heavy. She's in egg production. So the queen is stuck. Therefore, the workers consume honey and form a cluster around the queen to protect her from the heat and smoke that's potentially about to invade their space. So if we smoke them so much that we force them out into the air, uh, those are stressed bees. So aside from the smoker fuel, it's the way we use our smokers, heat, so we want a cool smoke, dense smoke, a smoke that gets a reaction from the bees that we want. And if you can achieve that with something that you're already using in your smoker, then that's great. You're there. Um, elaborate smells and things like that. Um, I would like to know more. If you are listening right now and you know how that 60% more calming than burlap, and of course they're not mentioning other smoker fuels, exclusively burlap, and I don't personally use burlap. Because even burlap that was used to carry coffee and things like that, they might call that a food grade burlap, food grade burlap, look into the process that made the burlap. Because we're just putting anything that burns that's combustible, it's creating off gases that are detrimental, no matter what it is. If it's a fire and it's burning, it's detrimental. Our point is to make that impact as low and effective as possible. That's it. So all the different smoker fuels and stuff. Now we're in the fluff section and I want to thank Slate again because this is a perfect segue. Because there's going to be a link down in the video description for what? Smoker fuel. Why? Because my bee club is using it as a fundraiser. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, There'll be a link to Switchgrass Smoker Fuel, which is made in conjunction with Ernst Seeds. So Switchgrass is a biofuel. It is not the same as pellet stove fuel. So don't confuse the two. The good news is I've been using it for the past year. So the past summer and into the fall. And it is the longest burning smoker fuel I've ever used. It takes a little effort to get it started. So we're talking about switchgrass smoker pellets. And when you light them and get them lit, half a canister, and I don't use the big canisters. I'm talking about one this size. This one is brand new, hasn't been used. This has the insert in it, which is where you put your smoker pellets in or whatever smoker fuel you use. It has a standoff on the bottom, and that's because the air coming in goes from the bottom and rises through it and continues to have the combustion going. And remember that I mentioned that you need to have a spark arrestor in the top. That's what this is right here. So no matter how much you puff it, this is going to keep 
embers and sparks from flying out and hitting your bees. And I've tried, uh, historically, I use grass. I scoop grass out from underneath my mower deck. So on those damp days when the, the grass clumps, I've collected that and it dries for several months. And I found that to be a long burning fuel, but it smells like burning grass in your yard. It's not that nice to sniff. I also use, as I mentioned before, the pine shavings that are used for bedding. And I have multiple smokers preloaded and I ignite those as I go. But one smoker does not get me through and I don't have a big bee yard. So the switchgrass smoker pellets that I'm going to promote and I'll tell you why. So don't judge me yet. The smoker pellets, uh, once they're lit, they lasted all afternoon. And I couldn't even put them away, couldn't put the smoker away in the garage. Now, I need to have some kind of container or a cap for the end of the smoke or a cork to put into it to stop the smoker at the end of when I'm using it. But that is the longest burning smoker fuel that I've ever had. And it is dense, cool smoke. And it smolders perfectly. And whenever I need it, it always seems to be there after you get it lit and I light it with a propane torch. So the reason I'm promoting it is it's a fundraiser for the nonprofit for my bee club. And of course that furthers education for beekeeping and I get zero benefit from that. So I'm going to put a link down below if you want to follow it, read about it and look into that smoker. It's an eight pound bag of pellets. So I will demonstrate that later this year, but I did not make a video about it yet, but it is, and I'll say this with confidence, the best smoker fuel I've ever used. Now, Fred, have you ever used Becom All Natural Hop Smoker? No, I have not. So I can't make a comparison. That stuff is $20.95 for two pounds. You can have eight pounds of switchgrass pellet smoker from Ernst Seeds and that is $30 including shipping. And it's a fundraiser for a nonprofit which furthers the education for beekeepers, which is what I'm doing right now that I don't charge you for. So there you go. Look at the link. Please buy a million bags of it and support the Northwest Pennsylvania Beekeepers Association. And uh, of course, the outreach that we provide from there. So now for the what's going on outside, we saw the videos. Uh, bees are checking everything out. They're even getting into bird feeders. You have a high potential for robbing with these warmups in spring. This is way too soon. The environment is not providing what they need. Although I was out with binoculars today and it does look like some of the maple trees, the little tiny buds are starting to open. That is not good news because it's about to get really cold. The good part of that is Maple trees are tough. They're good going, but the sap is running. The buds are starting to open. Maple trees are one of the early providers for our bees. So the next thing that I'll be seeing, I expect to, will be bees flying in the treetops, of course. And uh, But they are pinging on all the other hives. They're looking for openings. They're looking to see if there are resources in there. So you need to please consider robbing screens. I don't care what kind. This is the Bee Smart Designs robber screen, probably one of the most popular robbing screens for beekeepers. This is a Cirocell robbing screen. Um, you've got all kinds of entrances. Please consider if you've got a colony that is in any way undersized, underdefended, please make sure their entrances are small for days like this. 
put your rhyming screens in position temporarily, or you can keep them in place for spring if it's a colony that's gonna need a lot of work. Some people get concerned that because the openings, of course, are in the top, what about dead bees? Can they drag them out and stuff like that? They do, they get them out. Not as easy as if all they had to do was drag them out the landing board. So you could just reduce the entrance or put a robbing screen on, or just be aware and do multiple inspections a day. But here's the warning I give you, my beekeeping friends. If robbing starts, if the assailing bees get through that entrance and access honey, you will not be able to stop that robbing frenzy. They have memories as long as they live. If they get back to the hive and they come back with more scouts and they all start robbing, they will be on that attacking hives shopping cart list for as long as those bees live. So, you know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure, robbing screens, be aware of what's going on. The other thing is uh, this time of year, as I've done and as I've shown in the video, in fact, when I close out the video today, I'm gonna give you a, a four minute slow motion sequence of the bees on pollen sub. When was that shot? This morning, because the bees are actually bumping into windows on my house. Uh, the earlier commenter who said that uh, they wanted to keep bees in a 50-foot area, my entire apiary is 80 feet from where I'm sitting right now. So the bees are intense and they're checking every little nook and cranny, scouting everything. So I did put out um, the AP23 on an egg carton. Egg cartons work really well because uh, the bees get their footing. You never see dead bees on it. They get their pollen and they fly away. Right now, there are so many bees clouding over that egg carton of pollen sub um, that you almost can't see the egg carton from the top. So it's even worse now than it was when I made the video. So what's going on is this can tide some of them over. We have cold weather coming again. So another question that often comes up is if we put out pollen substitute right now, is that gonna create a huge explosion of brood inside these hives and uh, get them out of control to where they're going to consume all the resources that they have far too much ahead of the environment providing resources that they need to sustain themselves. And no, not considering the number of colonies that I have. And uh, then of course, just one tray of pollen sub out there. The reason I put that out there is to get my bees off of my uh, bird feeders. The bees are after the, the seeds in the bird feeder so much that uh, the bees were keeping the birds from coming to the bird feeder. So here's the thing. But the good news is the birds don't need the feeders when the weather's not that cold and rainy and everything else. And then when they do need it, the bees won't be flying. But putting out pollen sub does not hurt them. Uh, so it's a great time. Check the, again, we're heading to the critical starvation zone. This is where we get a warm day like this and people get a warm, fuzzy feeling about, look at all my bees that are flying. Look at every hive. They're just fantastic. And what we don't realize is they may actually be actively consuming the very last remnants of resources inside the hive. So consider an emergency ration. The weather is highly variable, unpredictable. The environment's not providing enough yet. So the warm up is ahead of what nature's response is going to be. So making sure that you have emergency rations, if it's a sugar, if it's a candy board, if it's a fondant, which is what I personally recommend, Hive alive fondant, um, then that can sustain the bees and get them through this rough period that we're about to hit because they're brooding up 
they're using up proteins, they're using up carbohydrates, and they can exhaust themselves. So be aware. That's all I have to say. So I want to thank you for spending your time with me today. And I hope that you got something decent out of it. Don't forget to please check the video description down below and look for links and things like that. And uh, I just hope you have a fantastic weekend and that wherever you are, your bees are doing great. Thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.